So I want to read again the passage for today. We are in the book of Philippians chapter 4. Starting in verse 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so let's set the scene real quick. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi. It's one of the first churches that actually he ever helped establish. And up to this point, right, Paul is writing this letter. He's just trying to encourage the church. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. He's trying to help them understand if you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then this is what your life should look like. At the same time, Paul's writing his letter from prison. And so what he's doing is that a lot of the churches are discouraged by his imprisonment. And so he's trying to help them see what the Christian should do in the face of um, diversity, not diversity, in the, fa- in, the face of, <laughs> in the face of diversity, in tough times, there we go, I can't think of the word right now, as well as what it means to be a citizen of God. He's trying to balance those two things, being a disciple of Christ, being diverse in Christ, and going through tough times. And so hopefully I can do a better job of balancing those two things as we go as well. And so Paul, for the majority of this letter, is encouraging them. And then near the end, as he tends to do, he's given rapid-fire exhortations to them before he concludes. Right? Starting in verse 4, he gives the first exhortation, which is what? Rejoice in the Lord. And I'll say it again in case you didn't hear me, right? So Paul's writing, rejoice. That's the first exhortation. And it's weird because it's almost like he's giving them a command, right? That part of what it means to be a disciple of God is that you should be joyful, that you should rejoice. And if you're like me, that might make you feel, you know, some kind of way. Because if you're like me, you don't always feel like rejoicing. And it almost seems like what Paul is saying, right, is that we should always be happy and always be glad with the Lord. But have y'all ever met people like that? You know what I'm saying? Are they like, like, like a little bit too happy all the time? A little bit too, like, uplifting? Like, they won't let you be sad? Oh, don't worry about it. Just smile. Think positive thoughts. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're always encouraging. And you're like, if you encourage me one more time, I swear, you know? Don't be nice to me right now. That's what I'm mourning, right? It's appropriate to have times where we lament or we sit in the weight of what, of the situation that we're in. But it sounds almost like Paul is saying that we should strive to always have this feeling of happiness, And so I had to look into the word rejoice and how he uses it throughout the book. And he uses it actually in every single chapter, one through three. And every time he uses it, do you know what he's talking about right before he says to rejoice? His imprisonment. In chapters one through three, almost, I should say, every time he uses and says to the people, hey, rejoice, he talks first about his imprisonment the difficulties that they're facing as a church. And so um, it's weird then that he seems so content with telling us that we should then have joy. 
And if you're like me, I begin to think, well, maybe, maybe it's because prison isn't that bad for Paul, right? Maybe he's in a nice prison, like an OJ-type prison, right? He could have visitors. He has food. Like, maybe he's, he's kind of chill, like he's cush. Like, who is Paul, right? Maybe Paul isn't qualified to tell us who are going through real struggles what we should do in the face, right, of, what's the word I'm looking of, anybody? Adversity, Adversity thank you. It's like diversity? And then I remember what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. I love the church. That was, that was a beautiful picture of what a church should be. And starting in verse 25 of chapter 11, he's talking about some adversity that he faces. Three times I was beaten with rods, he writes. Once I was stoned. I love that he could add that. Once I was stoned. How many people could be like, once I was stoned and I'm here to write about it? I mean, some of y'all in a different sense maybe could say that. But this is a, right, stoning, like stones thrown at you, right? Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and day I was drift a sea. On frequent journeys I was in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And if this was not enough, he writes, right, apart from all these other things, there's this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I think Paul's qualified to talk about what we should do as believers when life is hard. And what does he say we should do? Rejoice. That's what he writes to us. We should rejoice. And so when I look at the context, though, of this word and how he uses it, I don't think Paul is saying always be happy. I don't think he was happy when he was beaten with a rod. You know what I'm saying? But it sounds like he's saying that part of what it means to be a believer, to be a follower, to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, is that even when you don't have positive physiological responses to your situation, that you can have hope. And that hope is a foundation for joy in all things, at all times, no matter what. In verse 5, I think he calls it something slightly different. Uh, in verse 5, what he writes is, um, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I thought it was kind of a weird word to have in the Bible, reasonableness. So I looked it up in the Greek. You know what I found out the best translation in English is? Being reasonable. <laughs> it's kind of disappointing when I looked it up. I was like, dang it. It's not deep insight, you know. But, but. But that's just what it means. It means being reasonable, like not getting too high, not getting too low, like being content, right? Being cool in the face of, or in the times where you mourn, in the times where you weep, having hope. Right? That's kind of what Paul's saying. Be reasonable, be cool. He says, and you should be known as somebody. That's so important. For us to understand, not just for this sermon, but for our lives, we should be known as being reasonable, as being joyful, as having hope, even in the darkest, hardest moments of our lives. Like, like that's part of what 
people should see, when they look at us, they should almost be drawn to us because we're light in an otherwise dark world. They should like know you by name. That is a person that is weirdly content even when things don't go their way. You should be known, Paul said. That's part of your call, once again, as a disciple of Christ. Don't forget, that's what the Lord might be calling you to do. In the next verse, he puts it another way. What does he say in verse 7? I'm sorry, 6. He says what? Don't be anxious about anything. Do you get It's the same thread throughout. Do you get it? He's saying, hey, rejoice. Be reasonable. Don't be anxious. It's the same theme that he's setting up for us. This is your call as a disciple. This is your call as a follower of Christ, that you would have this mindset. You would have this posture no matter what experience you find yourself in. That's what Paul is saying. And so the question that we should ask then, if this is truly a mark of being a disciple of Christ, this is what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to look like, how do we do it? How do we be content? How do we have hope? I think... um, I do want to make an important disclaimer. I know even in our room there are people here uh, who might struggle with, you know, clinical depression or clinical anxiety. I think sometimes it's almost discouraging to hear sermons sometimes, and the church is not always great at recognizing the reality of that. And so I want to say I truly believe that God loves natural medicine and doctors and science. And so what I'm saying here is, in a way, spiritual medication. I think there's a spiritual reality that I and Paul are trying to fight here. But I don't think it should replace, right, the natural reality of your situation as well. And I think I want it to work in conjunction with your situation. Does that make sense? I think it's an important sometimes disclaimer to make before I just say, hey, be content. Don't be too high. Don't be too low. And so let's keep going. What is the spiritual medication that Paul gives us? What is the source of our hope and joy? Well, I think it starts back in verse 5 where he says, be reasonable. Be known for your reasonableness. Why? Because the Lord, he says, is at hand. Be known for your reasonableness because the Lord is at hand. Sometimes we, as modern readers, we don't actually recognize that a lot of the writers in the New Testament, Paul included, really expected Jesus to come back pretty soon. Like, like they thought maybe even in their lifetime that Christ would come back. And it kind of actually explains when you read some of the letters and you see the urgency of it, or even, even some of like the, what seems like a strict limitations, it kind of makes more sense when Paul was like, we're trying to set the church in order because Christ, his, his return is imminent. And so in some ways, on one level, on one surface, it sounds like what Paul is saying, right, is that we can have joy, we can be content. We don't have to worry about the present sufferings of the time because they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us, right? Amen? The problem is I think most of us would actually be okay if I stopped my sermon there. I mean, it might be a little bit short. Maybe you guys would like it short, right? We don't talk about prayer that much, but I don't know. Go eat food or something. Like, my most 
I think preachers actually and Christians, we're actually okay ending here with this idea that our hope is in heaven, right? Or our hope is in waiting for Christ to return. Like, if we're going to be really, really real, when we think about this sermon series, can we really change? A lot of us, the answer is somewhat. Like, we think we could change to a point, and then we convince ourselves that now we have to wait until we get to heaven, where Jesus will miraculously change us. And we would, we would never, ever say that because we're sophisticated in our theology, right? We'll never say that. But when you look at the way we live our lives oftentimes, we don't really expect to change that much. Like, we're kind of okay that we peaked to a degree. Like, a lot of us, we do not rejoice in the Lord. We, we aren't content when things are tough. Our identity is in things like our jobs or our relationships, even our family. And when those things don't go well, what happens? We're anxious. And we're okay with that. Because I think we, we think we're going to wait in heaven. We, we can't actually change. I think that's the answer for a lot of us. And it almost seems like if we're not careful, that's what Paul's saying, right? Oh, the Lord is at hand. He's coming back. That's where our hope is. But I think he's saying something deeper than that. I think he's saying that you don't have to just wait until heaven before you can change. And that's because in verse 6, finally, he introduces prayer. Yes, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he continues in verse 7. And he says, and a peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything. In prayer, give your supplications to God. And so what is Paul saying? I think that he might be saying that you could have your hearts and your minds guarded against anxiety, like right now. Like right now, there is a hope for you to change. Like right now, God can do something in your life that you thought would only happen when you got to heaven. I think when Paul says that the Lord is at hand. He's not just saying the presence of God is waiting for some future date to suddenly make himself eminent in our lives. I think he's saying the presence of God is waiting now to be invited into our daily walks as Christians so we could change our lives forever. I think that's what prayer is to a degree. It's inviting God to walk with you. In your mundane, sometimes boring, but often confusing life. I think there's a difference between hearing about God and walking with God. I had a professor in Wheaton, he always uses this analogy. He said sometimes getting to know God is kind of frustrating. He said, because you have a, it's like having a 10-piece puzzle and then you have like one piece left, 
and then you like try to fit that piece in the puzzle and then it doesn't quite fit you need to like step back and realize that, oh it's like a hundred piece puzzle right you need like one piece like you're trying to, you're trying to fit that last piece in a puzzle it doesn't quite fit you gotta step back oh my, oh my gosh it's like a thousand piece puzzle and like that's what scripture kind of is I, I, I argued last week that the purpose of scripture is to open our eyes to what God's really like like some of us we're, we're kind of content with the image of God in our heads, but, but Scripture shows you, and he kind of breaks the idol of God. He shows you what the characteristics of the Lord is actually like. It's, it's, it's a vehicle in which the omnipotent Yahweh has made himself known to finite, broken people. That happens through Scripture. He just shows us his characteristics and his nature, and you're like, oh, my goodness, this is so much different than I thought. And then the purpose of prayer is to take that same omnipotent God and to ask him in his power, now will you walk with me? Like Job who said, I had heard of the Almighty, but now I see him. That's how prayer and scripture work together. We see God walk in our life. It's, um, I'm lost already. I don't know where I'm at. I put it, it's like inviting a friend to know what's on your mind. It's, it's like mundane stuff. I mean, I pray sometimes, my, my prayer to God, I'm just like, God, um, do you want me to date somebody right now? You know? God, do you want me to, like, take this job? Take the, Actually, don't pray that at all, Chris. Don't worry. I never pray that. Um, but, like, I pray stuff, right? I pray, sometimes, I'm, I, I pray about the bulls sometimes. If y'all think I didn't pray for Zion Williams, you're crazy. You know what I'm saying? I fasted and prayed for Zion Williams, okay? Got an answer, but it's okay. I believe in him. It's all good. But it's like you just invite a friend to talk over your day with, right? In the same way, I think um, we invite God to be in our life as a father, as someone who will give us the things we need, or dare I even say, the things we want. I mean, Paul makes it clear. He says, bring your supplications, bring your requests to God. But I think what happens is that we don't, because we're actually afraid of being disappointed, right? Speaking of dating, I had a friend once who uh, volunteered foolishly to set me up on a date. He said, I know a girl, I think you guys might, like, hit it off, Right? And I said, okay, well, what's in it for me? He's like, you get to go on a date. I'm like, okay, I guess, I guess that's fine. I don't know. And so he, he talks to the girl. He gets back to me. He's like, yeah, she's excited. You know, here's her number. He's got to text her and set it all up. And I look at him, and I say, okay, what exactly did you tell her about me? And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, what, what exactly did you tell her? I was like, did you say I was tall? I was handsome? I was funny? Like, what did you tell her? And he's like, well, like, Why? I'm like, because, you know, I mean, like, it's true. I am those things. But it's a lot of pressure on me, you know what I'm saying, to, like, live up to that expectation, right? Because I, I was a little bit afraid, right? It's one thing to hear about somebody. It's nothing to actually walk and see that person, right? And so I think I'm funny. But I'm, like, funnier some days than other days. And I think I'm good looking, but the light, like, hits me a certain day, you know, on the right side. So I'm like, it, like, it depends. And I think at times, I think actually our fears, like, in all seriousness, our fear is with God, we read the word, and we see crazy stories in the Bible, don't we? Miraculous things he does, of healings, of, 
of, of, of opening blind eyes, of changing people's lives, of the right, miraculous, powerful, wonderful works. And I think we are scared to pray for specific things because we are scared he will disappoint us, that those things won't happen in our lives. We hear and we're content with reading the Bible and learning more and hearing sermons about God, but when it comes to actually bringing them into our life, we get scared. It's humorous. When we pray sometimes, when we pray things, when we're in a tough situation, we'll pray, God, give me endurance. I hear that prayer a lot. What's that even mean? Like, want to improve your cardiovascular, you know what I'm saying? Like, what does that mean? Give me endurance. But it's, we pray ambiguous prayers so if God either answers or doesn't answer, we don't really know, right? And we don't lose faith at least. But I think what Paul is saying is bring your specific requests to the Lord. Why? Why would Paul say this? I think because for him, he remembers when he was shipwrecked, and he remembers when he was hungry, and he remembers when he was thirsty, and he remembers when he was poor, when he had nothing to wear, when everybody was against him. And I believe he prayed in those moments, and he was not disappointed. But God gave him peace because God actually showed up in his life. Why am I saying this? Because I, our prayer lives, I mean, it's going to be messy, right? Our lives are messy. And to invite God, it will not always be perfect. It won't always be smooth. But I think this is what the Lord wants from us. I thought of um, a beloved favorite, Luke 11, verse 5. I mean, one of the only things that we see the disciples ask Jesus is how to pray. And he tells them, right, the Luke version is very short. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. And then he gives this story or this analogy, and he says uh, in Luke 5, let me pull it up. <clears throat> he says, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you that though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So I tell you, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be open for everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, find. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. So Jesus is telling this story. He's saying this is what prayer is like to God. It's like you going to God, a friend, and saying, I have no bread. I need some bread because I have a guest. I have a dire need. I need some help. And he said, the thing is that God won't say the door is shut. He'll never be like, I, I'm too busy for you. It's too inconvenient. God will listen to your urgent request. He said, and he'll give it to you. But, but, but why? Not because he's your friend. Isn't that weird that he says that? Not because he's your friend. At least not primarily because he's your friend. 
But what does it say? Because of his impotence. And if you didn't go to Wheaton College, impotence, what it means literally is rudeness. <laughs> like irreverence, impoliteness. Christ is saying that when you pray like this to God, he'll be inclined to answer you because your prayers are rude. That's what he's saying. What? Like, why? Why would God like irreverent prayers? Why am I reading this story at all, right? It's because I think that when, when we imagine the people that we've invited into our lives that we tend to be the realest with, when we imagine the people we've invited into our lives who we are the least polite with, is it not often the people you actually trust the most? It's not actually the people that you care for the most people you know care for you. Like I had an example from this week. I was having a Nigerian conversation, a discussion with my mom on the phone. And I say Nigerian because it's not an argument, but it's loud. You know what I'm saying? And I love and respect my mom. I have rarely ever disrespected my mom, right? But we're having a very loud, real conversation. And I didn't realize how loud it was, but apparently I was, like, pacing on this, right, this one sidewalk. And a lady comes down, a little bit older lady comes down with a bottle of water. And she quietly comes up to me and she gives me the water. She's like, it just sounds like you might need this water right now. <laughs> so I was, like, really embarrassed. I was like, thank you, know, really embarrassed. I think my mom, like, could hear. And, um, yeah, so I was embarrassed. But you know what I didn't feel? I didn't feel shame. I didn't feel regret about how I was talking to my mom because I wasn't disrespectful to my mom. I was letting her talk. I wasn't insulting her. I was real, though. I was honest. And I think part of what Christ is saying is that our shamelessness when praying to God shows him that our relationship is authentic. Like when, we re when we're real, we pray for specific things that even if we don't get those things, we'll say, God, I'm disappointed right now. God, I'm frustrated right now. God, to be honest, I, I trusted you for this promise, and, and I haven't seen you show up. And we'll keep knocking, and we'll keep asking, and we'll keep seeking. We won't say, oh, he just said no. I guess I have to know. We'll keep going, and it'll be kind of annoying and impolite and kind of rude, but we'll trust that our God wants to talk to us, spend time with us, and answer our prayers. I think that's what Jesus is getting at a little bit. It's us saying to God, I want you to be in my messy life. Let's talk. And Christ is saying he'll talk back. He'll answer you. You'll see him. And the result will be rejoicing. And reasonableness and a lack of anxiety. And ultimately peace. That's the end goal of prayer. It's peace that your friend and your father will be with you in this life, no matter what. Before we end, though, there's um, one more um, issue I think we have to kind of resolve. And, and it's the fact that if we could be frank, a lot of us here, we actually are kind of peaceful already. Like, we're kind of content already, a lot of us, if we're going to be real. Like, we don't really have a lot of things that we feel urgently needs, we need to pray about. 
Like, we're in America. We have daily bread. We have a roof over our house. A lot of us, I mean, we're high achievers. Like, we're, we're disciplined, right? And if we work hard enough, honestly, like, we'll have a stable job, a pretty good family, and we'll be okay. And I, and I think it's possible that God has seasons in our lives where he will just kind of bless us so that we could bless and maybe pray for other people. If I could be really real, I think oftentimes we don't feel an urge to pray. We don't feel anxious because we actually have goals or, or put our identity in things that we can just do by ourselves. Like I was thinking about what I'm doing right now. Like I'm saying I'm preaching the word of God. And when I think about that, that's terrifying for me. It might not seem like it. I'm terrified when I think about that. Now, there's times where I forget. And I'm like, well, David, you know, you're kind of charismatic enough. You're kind of funny enough. You're kind of, it won't go that bad. But I'm aware enough to know that I can preach an entertaining sermon that could tickle your ears in the moment. And then you go home, and you forget about it, and nothing changes. And you know what will happen if I do that? God will come to me, and God will ask me. He'll, he'll say to me, I gave you a platform to call the people I loved into my presence, to implore them to seek after me. And you relied on your humor and your humanly gifts. Rather than falling on your face and asking me for supernatural power, you led the people astray to be entertaining. And I don't want to have that conversation with God. I don't. And I wonder if sometimes we also forget, though, that we, as a body of Christ, are called not to natural but supernatural goals and to a supernatural mission and to a supernatural identity that will require supernatural power. Our mission statement to see the gospel transform people, people in our neighborhood in Wicker Park, people in our jobs, people in our lives into spirit-filled disciples of Christ who was died 2,000 years ago. They would know that they're loved by him, by God, a God they can't see. That's an impossible task. It's an impossible vision. It wasn't a vision for one man. It wasn't a vision for just to lose. It's a vision for all of us to carry the burden of. So I want to be real. If you don't feel the need to pray, maybe you forgot that you too have a part in the kingdom of God being pushed forth in Wicker Park. Maybe like me, you have to remind yourself at times to be a little afraid so that you'll come to your Father in humble submission and prayer. I want to end with this idea. It's tough because on one hand, right, I'm talking about submission. On the other hand, I'm talking about being honest and being bold. And it's a weird balance to strike both this boldness and this submissive prayer to God. And I like Tim Keller. I think he puts it best. He says, the best way, the only people who kind of hold this tension, this balance correctly, are children. 
He said, it helps when you remember that praying is like a child going to their father. He said, and your child is tugging on his father's sleeve because he sees something he wants or something he thinks he needs. And the father might not answer his direct request. He might just answer his need in the moment. But a child will just tug. And a tug will be impolite, right? A tug won't be very reverent. It'll be annoying. But he'll keep tugging. Why? Because he knows he's dependent on his father. But that child will have joy as well. That child will have joy when he's seen that his father wants to give him the things that he needs and even some of the things that he wants. When he knows that a father will never leave him, will provide measurably more than whatever he could imagine. And so we remember Christ, of course. And the picture of Christ in the garden and what he purchased for us before he went to the cross. And how he tugged on his father's sleeve. And he prayed, God, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Because he didn't want to die. Or he didn't want to suffer. And God had to say no. Right? On the cross, some people say that God even looked away and he couldn't comfort his son. Why? So that we now can tug on his sleeve and know that he wants to be in the messiness of our lives. And he will comfort us. And he will answer us. And so I want to say to you, beloved, I know we are not perfect disciples of Christ, if we're honest, maybe we're not even great disciples or good disciples of Christ. But I am preaching good news to you. And I'm saying to you, rejoice. Because your God is actually at hand. Waiting for you to pray and invite him into your life. So that his presence and his power can change you forever. So usually this is a time in the sermon when, when we pray, right? It felt a little bit awkward to just dive into it. And so what I wanted to do was just create a space, a time for us. I have no idea for each of you as individuals what it will look like to walk with God daily in prayer in your life. I have no idea. But that is my only task as a preacher. Like, I mean it when I say I don't really care how eloquent, funny... That, if, if I failed in that, I failed everything. And so my hope is to give you a chance, whether it's you, you want to pray, whether it's you want to think through your own life, whether you want to talk to somebody else, give you a chance to ask that question. What would it look like to have a daily conversation with the Lord? What would it look like to be honest when I talk to him, to not use flowery theological language? What would it look like to pray for specific, what specific things am I scared to pray about? So I just want to give you guys a moment to, in silence, go wherever God's leading you to go. Whether it's up to him, out to somebody else. And then we'll take some moments and I'll pray for us and then the band will lead us in rejoicing in God's presence.